Good morning, folks. Welcome. Welcome to Bigger Kirk. Uh, today's a little bit different. We're in the midst of some school holidays, so there's no Sunday club today, but there are plenty of activities for kids to do during the service, and you can sit with mom and dad and do those and listen as well. On the 17th of October, we're going to have a youth-led cafe church down in St. Mary's Hall. That's next Sunday. Oh, sorry. Okay. It's not next Sunday. It's the 24th. We're going to have a youth-led cafe church down in St. Mary's Hall. Um, And on the 31st of October, we're going to have our sort of first back-to-church communion, and we're hoping that we can do communion in the old way that we did long time ago before this COVID-19 struck us on the 31st of October. That will also be a gift day. We've been told by the Church of Scotland we can have a gift day coming out of the pandemic. We want to thank God for what he has brought us through. And we want to do that by actually giving um, and being generous to others. So we're going to split what we give on the gift day three ways. One, one way will be to help people in Burkina Faso who are suffering from the effects of climate change. And we're going to do that through the organization Tier Fund. So a third of our offering will go towards that appeal in Burkina Faso. Uh, another third will go to the Gillespie Center, our outreach, one of our outreaches here in our community, and a third will go to support the work of the church. So three ways, um, a gift day on the 31st of October. So please do think and pray about how much you want to give towards that. On the 7th of November will be Climate Sunday. It's the, the Sunday in the midst of COP26 happening. And uh, yes, we, we, we want to, to lift up before God that very important meeting that's happening here in Glasgow. I had an encouraging word this last week. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was uh, a, a theologian named Tom Wright, which you may, uh, a person you may have heard of before. Tom has written many, many books on the subject of the New Testament in particular. And he was sitting on a train going to a, a conference, and he was reading a volume about Jesus, about the historical Jesus, and it was uh, on the table there in front of him. And uh, another passenger got on the train and sat across from him. This passenger, it turned out, was a, a, a fellow from Japan. First time in his life to explore the world, and he had come to Great Britain's, the first port of call. And he saw Tom reading this book about Jesus, and he never really understood about the Christian faith or about Jesus. So he asked Tom, um, Tom, uh, he asked Tom, this, this stranger on the train, could you explain to me about Jesus? 
I've never heard of him before, and I don't know about Christianity. So Tom felt this great burden to explain everything that he knew about Jesus, and Tom has written volumes and volumes and volumes about Jesus. And Tom said afterwards, after this conversation, he tried his best to explain very simply to this man what Jesus was about. And he said afterwards um, that he should not have felt that burden that he felt because in that conversation there weren't just two people, there were three. That God was there, God was present. And any conversations we have about God, when we, when we share our faith with other people, and, and when I share what I believe God is saying to you on a Sunday morning, God is present as well as you and me, as well as you and whoever you're talking to. God is present. And when we introduce a friend to a friend, we let that relationship move on. And we let the friend reveal to the other friend who he is and what he is about. That that was a relief to me, a comforting word, because sometimes here in church, reading a passage of scripture that I have struggled with through the week and I've, I've heard God say so many things about and I've, I've sat down with friends and we've looked at it as well. I, I feel this burden of things that I need to communicate to you, that I need to teach you because I am called to be your teacher. And I know that some people also get frustrated when they come to worship and they feel that I haven't spoken to their particular need. So all of us sometimes are frustrated here. But let's not forget that there is a third person in this conversation. God is present with us. He has invited us to be here this morning because he wants to speak to each and every one of us. Not only through me, though, though I should hope that what God inspires me to say and share with you is something that you need to hear, but God is speaking to all of us. So let's come to worship with the expectation that we are going to hear individually from God. And his word to us will be powerful. Let's pray as we approach God. Life-giving God, you have blessed us so much in creation and what we see around us and in the people that you have given to us, but you have blessed us even more by giving us your Son and redeeming us through him. Lord, in this moment, as in every moment of life, we need your blessing anew every day. And so we come to you and we ask you to bless us. We ask you to forgive us when we haven't listened to you speaking to us. 
we want to say to you right now. We are ready to hear. Speak, Lord. We pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is a kingdom, power, and the glory of And Stuart's going to come and bring us our reading this morning. Stuart. The first reading this morning is from the New Testament book of Romans, chapter <coughs> 1, verses 18 to 24a. And this passage deals with the guilt of mankind. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world's God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. <clears throat> although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. And the second reading is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 35. And this deals with the road of holiness. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the <coughs> desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Ravenous beast, they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing 
will flee away. May God add his blessing to these readings. Thank you, Stuart. We've looked at Genesis 1 and 2 for a number of weeks now. And we're told there in Genesis 1 and 2 about the vocation of human beings, about the job that human beings were given from the beginning of time. The relationship between humanity and the rest of creation is portrayed there in Genesis 1 and 2 primarily as a relationship of our responsibility over creation. Our relationship with creation, however, is not just responsibility over. It is not just ruler over subject, worker over worked, or keeper over camped. There are indications even in Genesis 1 and 2 that 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 relationship between us and the created world is much wider and much deeper. For instance, there in Genesis 2, the word for human is Adam. And the word for earth is Adama. It's a a word play. Oops, sorry. It's a word play. Humanity is formed from the earth. Adam is formed from Adama. Our relationship is not just to rule over, but our relationship is about being connected to the non-human bits of creation. We are, according to Scripture, one with the earth. Adam from Adama. We are one with the earth and the rest of all that God has created. The world affects us and we affect it. This relationship between us and the world is a relationship of interdependence as as well as a relationship in which we who are made in God's image are responsible. Isaiah 35, like Psalm 104 that we looked at last week, is another beautiful poetic passage about the created order. The striking thing about this passage, however, sorry, my my tablet keeps messing up today. (laughs) Sorry, folks. Bear with me. I have to keep turning this off and on. Okay. I'm back. I'm back. (laughs) Technology. Where would we be without it? The striking thing about this passage in Isaiah 34 is... Sorry, folks. Oh, (laughs) 
We've got the paper copy. <laughs> Very good. I'm going to find my place here. Yes, the, the striking thing about this passage is this relationship of interdependence between the human and the non-human world that it betrays. The way that the passage explores that relationship is, is not unique to Isaiah 35. It, it comes up all over Scripture time and time again. In chapter 35 of Isaiah, he's prophesying of the return of the exiles from Babylon. And the surprising thing is that it's not just the, the people who are glad about that redemption that God has won for them from Babylon, but it's the land that is glad as well. The deserts are glad, it says. The wilderness rejoices. The desert places are turned into pools of water and all this flora and fauna spring up because of that redemption that God has won for his people. I want to come back to Isaiah 35 in a minute. But, but first, let's look at some of the other passages in Scripture that, that speak of this interdependent relationship between humans and the rest of creation. But unlike Isaiah 35, these other passages are passages that speak of that relationship in a less than positive way. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 3. You remember how Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden by eating that forbidden fruit. Well, after this event that we call the fall, Adam and Eve are told by God of the negative consequences of that disobedience. And pertinent to our topic this morning of that interdependent relationship between humanity and the rest of the world, those consequences that are outlined by God in Genesis 3 are not just consequences for humanity, but they're also consequences for the rest of creation. So there in Genesis 3, God says to Adam... And to Eve, cursed is the ground because of you. Because they've eaten that fruit, cursed is the ground. Through painful toil, you will eat from the ground all the days of your life. Because of what humans have done, the ground for which they are responsible is cursed. And then in just the next chapter, in the story of Cain and Abel, as you probably remember it, after Cain kills his brother, there's another curious passage along these same lines. The Lord said to Cain after he has murdered his brother, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and you are driven from the ground. 
the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the ground, on Adamah. Somehow, the Bible seems to be saying, Cain's violence has affected not just his relationship with God. Cain's sin has not just affected his relationship with other human beings. But Cain's violence has affected the earth as well. And the ground speaks to God of what has been done. Over in the book of Leviticus, when God redeems his people from Egypt, he promises them the land of Canaan. In his redemption from Egypt, he gives them a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But he warns them that if if they are disobedient to his ways, this is what will happen to their relationship with the land If you defile the land, this land of milk and honey that I'm giving you, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Chilling words. God's promise if they sin. Then in the words of the prophet Hosea, We have another curious passage along these same lines. Now, Hosea was the prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. And they sinned. God is going to send them into exile. And he sends them, the prophet Hosea, to give them a warning. And he says, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up. And all who live in it waste away. Beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are all swept away. More chilling prophecy showing us the interconnectedness, interrelationship between the humans who live on the land and the land itself. And then earlier in the book of the prophet Isaiah, from which our reading comes, just three chapters before, we have another similar passage. Here the Judahites, those who belong to the southern kingdom, have done the same as the Israelites in the northern kingdom to whom God sent Hosea. They too have disobeyed God, and the consequence is exile again. And the promised land, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, go from being a paradise to a wasteland. 
Isaiah says this, beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people, a land that is now overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all the houses of merriment and for the city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. At first, this connection between what we do and how the land suffers might be hard to see. How does my lying and murder and stealing, as outlined by the prophet Hosea, how does that affect the land where I live? Well, let me show you some images that might help you to make the connection clearer. That's a photo of one of the many cities in the nation of Syria that has suffered from war. Bloodshed following bloodshed. A devastated land. And that's a photo of the devastation of the land of the Niger River Valley that has suffered because of unscrupulous oil companies, many of whom have their headquarters right here in this country, and corrupt government officials in the nation of Nigeria. And this is a picture of a mountain of plastic waste that was sold on from the UK to companies in Malaysia not to be recycled as we all thought it was going to be but to be burnt and the children living around that idyllic paradise in Malaysia are suffering and their lungs are being burnt because of the toxic waste that we have produced I wonder if you see the connections now that the prophets have been talking about. The land suffers because of our violence. The land suffers because of our greed and our selfishness. It's a harsh thing to say that the effects of something like climate change are God's judgment. We, we don't like to talk in those terms. Because in the popular thinking, God's judgment is, is him capriciously acting, often arbitrarily, to punish individuals as if he is some sort of ogre of a parent. But that is not the way that the scriptures portray the judgment of our loving Heavenly Father. Yes, he judges, but he doesn't judge capriciously and arbitrarily. Look at our passage from Romans chapter 1 where Paul speaks of God's judgment. He speaks there of God's wrath, God's anger. God's anger comes because human beings, according to Paul, have suppressed the truth. We have suppressed the truth as God has revealed it in creation. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of 
people. That's us. (laughs) People, all of us who have suppressed the truth by our wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to us. Because God has made it plain to us. For since the creation of God's world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, an aside here, Paul's not alone in telling us that God reveals himself in what he has made. Think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Think, too, of our psalm last week, Psalm 104. Truly, creation speaks of its maker. As we sang in that song a few weeks ago, creation sings the Father's song. And here in Romans 1, Paul explains that we are in the predicament that we are in because we have suppressed God's truth. He goes on to say that God has given us over. God has given us over to the consequences of our sin. It's a chilling and sobering truth that we as a human race have been sowing the wind and as a consequence we are now reaping the whirlwind. God doesn't lightly punish. God doesn't actively punish here in Paul's understanding. But with much heartache, God is letting us have our own way. We have chosen this course. And God lets us. He gives us over to what we have chosen. We don't listen to creation, Paul says. We don't respect and obey the God to whom creation points. And as a consequence, things are falling apart. And in my mind, there is no better example to us of of us suppressing God's truth and of him letting us have our own way than what we are experiencing in the effects of climate change and like for other sins it's not just the perpetrators of the sin that suffer the consequences but other human beings suffer too especially the poor of the world and the earth itself suffers as well and of course of course as with all sin The cross of Christ stands tall as the antidote to it all. The cross of Christ stands as the antidote to the sin that has caused climate change. At the cross, we understand that though God has every right to condemn and judge us for what we have done to his good earth, God does not condemn in judge he the holy god of highest heaven comes down as one of us he the highest god of holy heaven 
takes on flesh. He becomes one with the earth. He becomes one with the victim of our sin. And the Bible says that he goes even lower and says that he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. He takes on the judgment and the punishment. He does all this to redeem and to renew. To redeem and to renew not just my human soul, but the whole cosmos. The whole cosmos that has been violated by human sin. And thankfully, Romans 1 and all those other passages of doom and gloom are not the last word that the Bible has to say. We have hope-filled, glowing prophecies like the one in Isaiah 35 that show that God's redemption, like his judgment, does and will have an effect, not just on individuals, but on us as families, on us as whole communities, and on the whole earth itself. And of course, Isaiah 35 is poetry. Like many of these passages that we've been looking at this morning, Isaiah 35 is full of images and metaphor. But I don't think that the picture of creation rejoicing at the redemption God brings for his human family is just imagery. I believe that there is a deeper magic portrayed here in these passages as C.S. Lewis would talk about it in his Chronicles of Narnia there is a deeper magic going on here about this relationship between us and the created world and I believe that the promise of redemption for the whole creation that is still to come is something that we as God's people should cling on to in the face of what is happening to our planet today. But the fact that God is the one who will redeem us and our world does not absolve us from our responsibility. Those judgments of the past and the judgment that we are facing today are meant to lead us to repentance Judgment is never the last word. God gives us his judgment as mercies so that we can turn around and return to a deeper obedience and a deeper reliance on God and his ways. As Christian people, we have a responsibility to not only care for and tend God's creation, but also to listen to God's creation and to learn from it as God speaks to us through it. As creation declares God's glory, let's join with creation and declare his glory too. When creation groans because of our sin and our failings, Let's repent. Let's turn around. 
change our ways. And when creation rejoices because of God's salvation, shown to us in so many ways, big and small, let's rejoice along with creation. I don't know about you, but I have become unaccustomed to listening to the non-human world. And in this area, I need to repent. I need to change my ways. I need to listen more intently to God and to the world that he has made. I love a poem by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is an is a interesting man. He's an elderly man now, but he's written loads of novels and poetry, and he's a farmer and he lives in a, a, a little place in Mississippi, out in the boondocks, we would say, in America. But he is a prophet, I believe. This was a poem that Peter wanted to share with us last week, but he didn't have enough time, and so I share it today. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. And it speaks of... Wendell Berry's practice of finding peace in the face of all that threatens our lives and the lives of our children. Let's listen. Let's watch and listen to this poem. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to rest by your still waters. Assure us, even in the face of so many challenges with which we are faced, that you are our good shepherd. Continue, Lord, to speak to us through your word and through your world. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Speak, and by your spirit, help us to respond by how we think, and by how we act. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Saw this meme on Facebook the other day. It did cause me to laugh. I, I do love my morning coffee. But it reminded me of something a little more serious. With climate change, life needs to change for all of us. Not too long ago, we were given the impression that we could make little tweaks in our lives that weren't very inconvenient for us, and that would sort everything out in terms of climate change. But it's becoming apparent from what the scientists are telling us that if we are to care for this planet in the way that it needs to be cared for, we are going to have to be inconvenienced. It's something that we need to take on board. It's something that as God's people, I would hope that we are up for. Because for us, life is not just about the joy of a cup of coffee, though that's a part of life. Life and the joy of life is not just about a certain lifestyle that we've become accustomed to. Life and joy are much, much more than that. 
And though things change and though we are being called to make changes and to make some sacrifices, we as God's people rest assured on a rock that does not change. And we know that our joy in that coming kingdom will know no boundaries. Let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Presently, Lord, our world is groaning. To many in our world, this crisis is more apparent than it is to us. But events of late have made us aware of it too. Made us aware that things need to change. Lord God, we ask you to give us wisdom. Give us courage to, to make the changes that need to be made. We pray for our leaders. We ask you to give them foresight to make decisions that will satisfy not just this generation, but generations to come. We ask you to bless those leaders with wisdom from on high in these difficult days. We pray for our friends and our family and hospital and those recovering at home. We pray for folks struggling with grief and depression and anxiety. We think particularly of people suffering from mental health issues today and this the beginning of mental health week. We pray for all these that we've been thinking about, those in hospital, those recovering, those suffering from mental health issues. And we ask you, Lord, come and be their healer. Come and heal this world. Come and heal in ways that you know are best. Above all, Lord, may all these for whom we pray along with us learn to rely on you, to draw close to you, to come to you in trying times as well as in times of comfort and ease. Lord, help us as your people to recognize what Paul says about this life that we lead, that it's a race. Help us to recognize this race for what it is. So help us to prepare ourselves to lay aside the things that do not matter and to dig deep into your spirit as we strain forward to that finish line that you have established for us, that finish line that you have stretched out for us in your grace. Keep us running the right way, Lord. 
for we run into your arms, our loving Heavenly Father. For we pray in the name of your Son, our Lord, even Jesus Christ.